friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find us under Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and it's been a busy week as the Senate Judiciary Committee held hearings for the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. We'll be talking to our good friend, Catherine Jean Lopez, who is editor-at-large of the National Review, all about Amy's record and what the secular press are considering her scandal, which is that of a Christian woman living her faith proudly within her family and within her career. Also, we look to a case that is quickly coming up for the Supreme Court, the Philadelphia faith-based foster care under attack. But first, it's such a thrill to have the whole Catholic Association team here together today to go through some of the highlights of the hearings. I'm happy to introduce my TCA colleagues and friends, Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire. Good afternoon, ladies. Great to be with you. Uh, Typically, nominees sit uh, with pages and pages of, of notes and scribbles as they are grilled unmercifully by the Senate Judiciary members, the committee members on, on the other side of the aisle. But Amy Coney Barrett was sitting there with an empty notepad in front of her, which she held up with this <laughs> wonderful, with a wonderful grin when asked about her notes. That to me was, was emblematic because she's a woman who is obviously prepared through and through for all the, everything that's been thrown at her. And, and everything has been thrown at her, it seems. I don't think that the Democrats uh, have left any stone unturned in their crazy search for something to stick, something bad to stick to her. Gracie, that moment when Senator Cornyn asked her what notes she had in front of her, because I think he had noticed she didn't have any (laughs) notes in front of her. So then she held up this blank pad of paper. And of course, that was meant to showcase her brilliance. And it definitely did that, that she could field all of these detailed questions about the law with not a single note, not a single briefing book. But like you said, even more so, I thought it was so emblematic of who she is because Mm -hmm. she's so grounded. She's so steady. Not only does she know her stuff, she knows the law like the back of her hand, having taught constitutional law for 20 years. But but even more so, she knows who she is and she knows what she thinks and she knows why she thinks it. And she didn't need a bunch of briefing books to articulate that. And um, I think when in one of her introducers was the former dean of the Notre Dame Law School who hired her to teach as a young woman. And she introduced Judge Barrett as someone who's fully integrated in both mind, heart and spirit. And I think we just saw that on full and beautiful display this week. We were we were talking earlier, Maureen, you and I earlier in the week about carpools. We were looking at Amy Coney Barrett and we're saying, wow, that's a woman you'd want in your carpool. <laughs> which That's may right. sound it may sound um, a little lighthearted but it means somebody who is dependable always does the right thing is just and just has all she has all the marbles in her game you know she's she's managing everything beautifully that's who you want to be associated and, with and Gracie so darn likable 
And, yes. and so she she was so disarming. I have never seen those Democratic senators be so generally nice. I, I think they were just taken with her persona. She just really emanates goodness. And I think it was very um, disarming to a lot of the senators. Uh, although they did give her a grilling. They gave her a grilling <laughs> on the big issues, of course, like abortion, the Affordable Care Act, the Second Amendment, other issues. And don't you think, Ashley, that the way that they were speaking to her, it was night and day compared to their grilling of Kavanaugh. I mean, there were no real personal aspersions. They couldn't really get close enough to her personally with her disarming ways and her and, and her obvious gentleness to really cast stones. Yeah, no, I think they, I mean, first of all, I think they learned their lesson. Um, part of her meteoric rise was due to the way that she handled the utterly disgraceful way they treated her when she was in her hearings for the Seventh Circuit where they attacked her faith and really sort of ad hominem attacks. So I think you're absolutely right that they must have gotten the memo that that didn't go over well. And, you know, I think, you know, to the point about how relatable she is and how normal she is, I think this is sort of like an acid test um, for the American public as to how Democrats treat ordinary Americans. And obviously, she's extraordinary. She's this extraordinary scholar, this extraordinary journal jurist, this extraordinary mother. But there is something very ordinary or relatable about her. I Some of the details I've liked the most are, you know, just seeing her on one of the days when she had just a Starbucks cup sitting next to her. I thought, how many moms mm-hmm. <laughs> have just been like, this Starbucks cup is what's connecting me to life? Or, you know, one night somebody asked her, you know, I don't know how it came up, but she admitted that she had a glass of wine, <laughs> which was so funny because to have gone through all that and just, you know, one glass of wine. Um, but no, I think they realized how absolutely terrible it looked um, the first time they treated her in her first hearings. And that really she's, you know, as you both were saying, the sort of emblem of you know so many things that it would just have the optics of attacking her personally would have looked so bad and and then beyond that you know she was absolutely unflappable i mean i wasn't able to listen to every single minute of the hearings but every single minute that i did listen to she handled every every question she hit a home run to the point that you know, they were either flustered or they would just move on to the next question because she nailed it. And I think she is so relatable because she is such a normal person. She's from the heartland of America. She drives a minivan. Um, You know, she's a non-Ivy League educated future Supreme Court justice, which I I think she is quite proud of her background at Notre Dame Law School. And uh, she even quipped that she could perhaps teach all those Harvard and Yale folks at the court a thing or two about football. <laughs> she is wonderfully uh, the woman that, that you would love to have as your neighbor. And people, I, mean, I think American people are, are seeing that. And you know what seemed to me uh, difficult to watch is some of the women on the other side who were questioning her, that they were bringing a completely different attitude to the table. The smirks and um, the aggression. And uh, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of a Kamala Harris and Amy Klobuchar and the the woman from uh, Hawaii. Maisie Hirono. Hirono, Maisie Hirono. And those were not pleasant looks. That's ex- that's not something that, uh, they, they weren't ladylike <laughs> as, as uh, wonderful Amy Coney Barrett is. 
so let's talk about some of the issues that she was grilled on. We heard them grilling her over and over about the Affordable Care Act, which of course is kind of a bogus attack. And I think she and the Republican senators pretty thoroughly uh, debunked that. But it's really... Um, but it Maureen, really rep- Maureen, let me stop you there. What were they accusing her of? Because I had trouble following. What exactly were they worried about? What, what, are, what are they trying to get the American public worried about when it comes to the Affordable Care Act? Okay, so my analysis would be that the Democrats felt checkmated when President Trump nominated Amy Coney Barrett to Mm -hmm. be the Supreme Court nominee. I think they quickly realized there's no way to attack her. She's eminently qualified. She's a brilliant scholar. She's, uh, you know, her character is absolutely sterling. And she has this compelling personal story, this beautiful family. She obviously has a heart of gold. So I think the Democrats pretty quickly realized we can't, you know, pull one of these crazy Kavanaugh-style attacks that they, you know, the very unjust attack mm-hmm. that they launched against Justice Kavanaugh. So they, they were kind of left with nothing. So they had to come up with what, what what is essentially just a political attack because Democrats view the healthcare issue as something that polls well for them. So since we're three weeks away from an election, they decided they're going to do something that really has nothing to do with the nomination of Amy Barrett. Uh, they're just going to uh, attack her because they say, although it's completely groundless, that in a case that's going to be heard before the court on the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, they're just positing with with no evidence whatsoever that she's going to be the deciding vote to strike down Obamacare and therefore all Americans are going to lose their health care coverage and it's a complete chicken little the sky is falling, everyone is, you know, with a pre-existing condition will have no health insurance. So it's a ridiculous attack, but it's just entirely political because they kind of had no place else to go. So if that case went to the Supreme Court and it was decided against Obamacare, people would not necessarily lose their insurance. This is something they're making up? This is an entirely made up issue. Okay, good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we could go into the details about severability. Even Senator Feinstein was, uh, quote unquote, very impressed with Judge Barrett's reasoning Mm -hmm. on the severability issue. So if you kind of sort of read the tea leaves, Obamacare is not in danger in this case. But of course, there's no way to know for sure. But uh, anyway, it's just a political attack through and through. Well, I'm glad you told me that because I had a conversation earlier today with someone I work with and she said, I said, have you been watching the hearings? And she said, yes, I'm starting to get really concerned about my health care. <laughs> and I said, well, no. It, it's, it's terrible fear mongering. Yes. It, it's really, it's unjust to do that to people because it's scaring people. Mm-hmm. She was scared. And she said, I don't know how I would manage. And I said, listen, I think it's all scaremongering. I think you're, I think nothing bad could happen to your health care. So I'm glad to hear that from you. So what are other attacks uh, on the substance? So they, they attacked her on, on Obamacare. Um, what else? They obviously they attacked her on the fact that she's they think they implied that she made some secret deal with Trump about all the things that she's going to work on overturning right that are left over from the Obama administration only starting with Obamacare but including other things so what else were they uh, implying well I shouldn't say implying what else did they (laughs) they say that would what disaster is going to fall upon us according to the Democrats if Amy Coney Barrett is elected 
Well, you know, I think one of the things that she did such a good job with was she refused to be led down any rabbit holes. And, you know, time and time again, they tried to, through a series of questions, get her to admit she would rule one way or the other on a case or get her to say something that might require her to recuse her from another case or get her to say something about the president. And again, she was unflappable and she would always halfway through the questioning say, I see where you're taking me with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she did a good job a few times of kind of going on the offense and saying there's absolutely nothing in my record to suggest, you know, whether it was accusing her of trying to roll back this, that, or the other thing. She, you know, I think they, they tried to come at her from a thousand different ways, and I don't think any of it stuck. And, and while I agree that they they sort of used the moment to sort of campaign more broadly on on Obamacare, I'm not even sure that's going to be successful. A, because, you know, there's a whole separate conversation to be had about what people actually think about um, whether whether or not that health care policy is working for them. But I just think she did an extraordinary job with that. And then on the flip side, you know, I want I think there was some really incredibly, you know, praiseworthy moments from some senators who used the opportunity. I think to really rearticulate um, important views about um, life and religious liberty and just general constitutionalism, rule of law. I was so impressed, for example, with the way like Senators um, Sass and Senator Cruz and um, Senator Mike Lee um, used the. And I, I heard somebody at one point say, you know, we all know that she's pretty much an extraordinary, may, might have been Lindsey Graham say, she's an extraordinarily accomplished woman. She's going to be, you know, nominated or confirmed to the Supreme Court. We're just sort of talking at each other. Um, and, you know, if that analysis is true, uh, I, I do think that it was a really encouraging moment to to see the way um, certain Republican senators really took advantage of the moment to, I think, speak truth to power about um, fundamental American values, um, not just about human decency. I mean, I think it was Ben Sass who, who talked about basic civility mm-hmm. and, you know, the way religious liberty is something that precedes the, the, the you know, civil state. Um, and I thought Mike Lee's analysis of, you know, sort of the way that Roe v. Wade completely removed, just ripped away from the American people any say in the abortion debate, that that is sort of what has made these confirmations so hyper-controversial. So that was something that I took away as sort of a positive from the hearings to see to see so many senators speak so powerfully and boldly about these difficult issues. Ashley, I think you're absolutely right on. And I love the civics lessons from Senator Sass. Uh, Like you mentioned, uh, Senator Hawley was fantastic on uh, just explaining so many basic things about religious liberty. Um, I actually had three of my children sit down to watch. They had the day off school. And I actually couldn't get them away when it was time for, you know, dinner dishes. They were riveted. My two teenagers and even my nine-year-old were riveted at, um, well, I I think really it was Judge Barrett that had them uh, stuck to their seats, but they were fascinated at the back and forth. So I think you're absolutely right. And and, um, 
uh, Judge Barrett did avoid the rabbit holes brilliantly. She kept just quoting the Ginsburg rule, you know, no hints, no previews. She was <laughs> quoting uh, Kagan, no thumbs up, no thumbs down. Um, but, but one issue that did come up multiple times, of course, because it's usually all about abortion, uh, was this pro-life petition that Judge Barrett had signed uh, back in 2006. She was walking out of church one day and the St. Joseph County Right to Life had a little petition that she signed. Um, so they kept bringing this up over and over again. And and like you said, I, I loved how boldly she didn't back off of that at all. She talked about uh, sort of the precious nature of life and that she was proud to sign that. Um, it's something that we've never seen in a nominee before, just sort of embracing uh, her pro-life views. And and I thought um, Senator Lindsey Graham also was very moving when he, he said, and this is a quote from him, the first time in American history that we've nominated a woman who is unashamedly pro-life and embraces her faith without apology. And it, it was just incredibly inspiring, um, and particularly to have our daughters watching. It was just a fantastic moment. Now, can one of you explain to me why Senator Hirono asks uh, Amy Coney Barrett at some point, since you became a legal adult, have you ever made unwanted requests for sexual favors or committed any verbal or physical harassment of a sexual nature? Why does this come up? <laughs> Why does she feel that she needed to ask this? I have no idea. I mean, I think Senator Hirono has a sort of strange track record when it comes to these confirmation hearings. I mean, let's not forget that she and I believe it was her and Kamala Harris together who sort of tag-teamed to bully other Catholics who have gone before them in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so, I, you know, I don't understand why she would ask that question. Um, Bizarre. But she's, Bizarre. She certainly doesn't have um, a great, you know, track record when it comes to, um, you know, respecting constitutional litmus tests about, um, you know, re religion and office. So I, I just think she's herself has a sort of strange um, approach to the hearings that is uh, at best strange and at worst um, very problematic and potentially unconstitutional. And Maureen, what did you think of Senator Cory Booker's questioning of her on, on Wednesday, on Tuesday and Wednesday? The, uh, the issue of, uh, of race. trying to when he's, he spoke to her very strongly on the issue of race and racism in America, institutional racism, um, as he called it, or racial inequalities, inequalities of outcome. Yeah, well, she just very flatly, you know, of course, affirmed that she's not a racist and uh, that racism still exists in the country. Um, at, at one point, she was asked about the George Floyd video, and it was very moving to listen to her. I even saw one of the MSNBC commentators, it was Andrea Mitchell, talked about how moving that was to listen to her talk about the issue of race. And she has a son who's, uh, who's black, and she said, thinking about um, this in that context, she and her uh, daughter Vivian wept together talking about it. I mean, it, it's obviously a very personal issue for her family, and it was very moving. But frankly, I was surprised that they uh, 
asked her some of those questions, but I thought she answered them uh, in just a very authentic and moving way. It did seem when he was going on about about race that it was it, it was directed at the wrong person in the room, somebody who is obviously colorblind and and has to have because she loves her children as it's so obvious, she has to have the all the all her children's um, best interests at heart all the time, regardless of their color. Um, yeah, it it seemed to me that it was it, it was a it was a bad line of reasoning. Although although Senator Cory Booker was was moving too in the way that he described the plight of of African Americans um, so much so so many times in America or so often. Mm-hmm. And um, but I thought that that was very interesting that that they would even try to pin uh, the label of racism on someone like mm-hmm. Amy Coney Barrett. You know what was the most moving moment of the hearing for me? It was one of the more personal questions. And she was asked it twice and gave similar but different answers. I think it was Senator Tillis and Senator Graham asked her, why did you say yes to accepting this Mm -hmm. nomination, kind of knowing what you were in for? And I was just blown away by her answer. It was so inspiring. She said, of course, she and her husband had to make this totally life-changing decision within a matter of days a decision that would totally uproot their their family. The confirmation process, in her words, is excruciating. And, and in her characteristic humility, she was saying, you know, there are others who could do this job well, but she said, I was asked to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and because she believes so much in the rule of law and in the importance of the Supreme Court to our democracy, to human dignity, that she felt compelled to say yes. And, and she said, she and her husband were discussing how it would impact their children, and they agreed that that was the biggest reason to decline for the sake of their children, but also that was the biggest reason to say yes for the sake of our country's children and for our children's children. And she said she thought it would be cowardly to say no, and that her whole family was all in with her. And I just thought how difficult that must be to accept a lifetime appointment. I mean, a lot of us, uh, we can commit in and out of our careers. We can have uh, th- do this job and then do a different job. We can take a few years off. We can, um, but, but this is a lifetime appointment. And it, it, you know, it kind of reminded me a little bit when, um, you know, a different office, when someone is elected Pope, the new Pope goes, yeah. to, a room, <laughs> it goes to a room called the Room of Tears. Oh because my gosh. It's, because it's such a sacrificial role. You're now giving your whole life to this job. Well, and she's uh, giving her husband and her children's lives, right? I mean, her children will probably have grown children before uh, the end of her tenure on the court. Yeah, so it was an incredible thing to say yes to. And in her characteristic way, she said yes. Wow. And Ashley, what, do you, what was the most moving moment for you of the hearings? Well, I, I would say I agree. And, you know, it's funny to bring back to the back to the normal. You know, I, I kept th- I think she said at one point, you know, my husband and I didn't even really have a lot of time to discuss this. And I because I have three young children, I just felt like, oh, my gosh, I think about how hard it is <laughs> for my husband and I to set aside time to talk about even like our checking account. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, to make such a monumental decision like that. And then I just kind of kept weaving in and out of like, you know, the legalese and the, you know, the inspiring to back to like, oh, my gosh, how much laundry. I mean, when all this is over, all this grueling process, she still goes back to 
her, you know, life that's, you know, so many of us moms can relate to, which is there's so much laundry, there's missing, you know, homework and backpacks and groceries. And, you know, I know she's talked about having, you know, great support system at home, but even for, even for mothers with the best support, um, who have half that number of children, it's still incredibly challenging. So, um, I, I would agree with Maureen that I think that was the most inspiring moment. And I just, kept thinking about all the all the juggling that she's had to do even this week you know you can't peek under your iphone in the middle of these hearings and be like you know johnny's homework is in the such and such you know (laughs) look here (laughs) so um just again i think the whole the whole thing is very inspiring i think you know it's a very inspiring time for women to see someone who again is this combination of so relatable and so inspiring at the same time and you know like maureen i showed it my my only my oldest daughter is old enough to really understand but it's very exciting to be able to you know tell your kids that someone who's a faithful catholic is in this role and that she's you know a mom and an an adoptive mom and, and so many things so i think the whole of an inspiring moment for Catholics and for women and for people who, you know, also believe in the legal philosophy that that she's espousing that sometimes feels like it's almost extinct to see like new life breathed into it is very exciting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's almost been comical watching some of the media reactions. Some of it has been quite ugly, but some of it I, I find almost funny. Um, CNN's Chris Cuomo, who, of course, is Catholic, uh, was commenting on her involvement with the People of Praise group. And he said, and, and this is a quote from him, he was saying, you know, she's different from most Catholics. And he, he meant this in a negative way. She's different. Her faith is more central to her value system. <laughs> <laughs> she, she is not an ordinary Catholic. And I thought, yes, she's not an ordinary Catholic. She's an extraordinary Catholic. I mean, she's extraordinarily gifted. She puts her gift to use in the service of others. She's extraordinarily generous and loving, which is why she has this large and wonderful family. Um, but it's just, it's almost funny to watch some in the media try to understand her. And and you can see how they are wowed. I mean, CNN's John King and Dana Bash were saying like, wow, in other times, or if she were nominated by a different president, she would get more than 70 votes here. You know, um, she's clearly wowing people. And I think it's just because she's so compelling, disarming. She's so just has a heart full of love. She reflects God's love so well, I think. Well, the hearings have had this tremendous effect because many of us, many Americans went into them thinking what the media wanted them to think, that they were going to see somebody who was a little kooky, belonging to a cultish kind of fringe wacko group with too many children. <laughs> And instead, they find this um, this marvel um, of a woman who obviously has the reins of, of her life firmly in hand and, and is doing things so gracefully and so beautifully. So thank you so much, uh, Maureen and Ashley, for joining me tonight. And um, it's been wonderful watching the hearings with you guys. And it'll be really great watching her, watching Amy Coney Barrett be appointed to the Supreme Court. I think we can expect wonderful things from her. Such a joyful Thanks, moment. Maureen. Thanks, Gracie.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and in this next segment, we continue our conversation on the Senate confirmation hearings with Catherine Jean Lopez. She's editor-at-large of the National Review and a good friend of mine. Welcome back to the show, Catherine. Oh, what a joy, Gracie. We were gonna, we're going to talk about the hearings, and I'm seeing, I feel like a lot of that sort of national angst is being transmitted through the hearings. Like I'm seeing, Absolutely. <laughs> do you agree with that? Absolutely. And it's so, it's so fascinating on one level, like if you can divorce your emotion from it, you know, for a few moments. I mean, you've got in Amy Coney Barrett, the loveliest, most excellent, you know. She's, she's any, preternatural. She's preternatural. I'm trying, I'm starting to think. She's, <laughs> that is possible. <laughs> but, but I mean, we're so, in so many respects, when you think about, you know, the theater is closed and, you know, you can't go to museums the same way. I don't even know if museums are open or not. So you have like literal beauty in the Barrett family, you mm-hmm. know, in every, so true. every layer of it. Right. And, and, and can we just appreciate this for what it is? I mean, this is the best of America, you know, whatever your politics is. I remember at the John Roberts hearing, and I keep needing to go back to to remember who it was. One of the women senators grilled him for not being a woman. Wow. <laughs> and, because I think it was a Saturday O'Connor seat. And so, um, you know, how dare you take a woman's seat, basically? And mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you respond to that, you know, sort of irrational, unfair posit? But so, so anyway, here you have someone that your daughter can look up to, you know? It lays bare the hypocrisy of the identity system, right? right so right, identity right. is so important until the identity uh, doesn't come along with the with the values and ideologies right. that, that you want it to be attached yeah. to. Women in every leadership position, except if they hold particular views or live a certain mm-hmm. way, you know. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's sad, sad thing to see. And But you do see, too, I mean, every, every question about, it was amazing the first day of the hearings where the Democrats did not hesitate it's even creepy how I, I thought Diane Feinstein had a, a beautiful opening talking about Barrett's family and then goes straight to abortion, which was, I mean, she obviously has no idea. She doesn't see it the way we would do, obviously, but it has, it's almost creepy the way that mm-hmm. they they went right there. And all this this healthcare stuff, wanting her to, for her to pretend to be a healthcare policy analyst or something, it's all about abortion, you know? And it's just so obvious. And I, I have to say, you know, on Willow, I'm grateful it's that obvious, except that, you know, only, only some of us can see how obvious it is, unfortunately. But, uh, but goodness. One side of America is hearing something completely different, right? Exactly. So America's right. divided yeah. down the middle. And one half of America is listening and is getting only one set of talking points. And the other side of America is not understanding those talking points at all. I'm having trouble with that. I'm, I'm listening to the Democratic talking points and I'm thinking, what are they talking about? What? Right, right. <laughs> why, is the, why is Obamacare in danger? And are these people with, with these illnesses that they keep bringing up? I'm a doctor, you know, and I, I want to I call out and I want to say people were, people's lives are being saved right and left before Obamacare. Like medicine was working before Obamacare. It's not like we went from zero to 100 overnight. A lot of it's not making sense to me. And I, I, I think a lot of America is the same way. But Catherine, you wrote a piece in National Review that I found so moving, it was so pretty. 
and it has a great title. It said, Amy Coney Barrett's Scandal Discovered. She Seeks to Live Real Christianity. And I think you put your finger on something that people of faith are having trouble understanding the other side. Like, why does she seem so bizarre to, right, right, to right. the other side? I mean, we're living in these beyond parody times. You know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll see someone talking about something on Twitter and I think, no, that can't really be true. And of course, it's true. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and that was my reaction to, to so many of these these pieces about people of praise, this group that she's a part of, which I've only ever heard wonderful things about. There's a, there's a bishop I know a little bit um, who is in people of praise, Bishop Peter Smith from um, Portland. And he's just lovely and inspiring and holy and, and draws you into the same. And um, so you want people like that around you, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not you believe in what they believe. I'm not necessarily, I didn't grow up on charismatic Christianity. So it's always a little bit foreign to me but it's also beautiful and you know people who, who really love the catechism of the catholic church and they they're tapped into the holy spirit in in a really beautifully intense way in a way that i think you know every, everyone who's a confirmed catholic probably should be you bring yeah. up you bring up the fact that in that there are other groups like people of praise and that catholics who practice their faith are well aware of these groups many of them belong to them and they are groups that are just regular catholics doing regular Catholic things, but in a in a certain with a kind of with a certain spirit or a certain focus that doesn't only grant them direction in their faith, but it also grants them a community in which that in which they can flourish. Well, Gracie, your your listeners will probably remember the Da Vinci Code, mm-hmm. that fictional book that that um, involves Opus Dei, which is one of the movements in the church that I think I list in in the in the article. It was a, it was a big headache for Opus Dei to be included in this book with. <laughs> myths about them and so they had to do this whole PR campaign to um to explain that they're not albino monks uh, beating themselves or whatever the storyline was <laughs> and Assassins. the fact that it was that bad okay yeah. um, I don't even remember it was so long ago I don't remember anything before March <laughs> all that well uh, but but Opus Dei is is this wonderful apostolic ministry just like people of praise very different in tone and tenor you know with It tends to be a more reserved crowd. You know, mm-hmm. they're not, they don't have their arms in the, in the air. And, and, and Pretty much um, the polar opposite when it comes to tone and tenor. Exactly. There's no speaking in tongues at an <laughs> There's no um, speaking but, sometimes. So. Well, but, but there are different types of people. There are different temperaments. So some people... Opus Dei is so helpful to them in tr- in trying to live um, the Christian life and having some fellowship in it with people with, who have the same values and, and maybe even temperaments too. When I see Amy Coney Barrett's family standing around her and beside her, and that you can see that they're a solid together family, which I have, you know, I have to say has to be the aim of every family in the United States, no matter how that family is composed, the togetherness, the solidity, the, the knowledge that you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and everyone that you love is still going to be living in the same house. That has to be everybody's aim and acme of, of ideal, no, for the family. And these faith, right. these faith communities, and I know from my own personal experience, they, they help us keep our families solid right. and strong and our marriages as well. Right. There is something like that is essential. It goes back to our, our conversation from, from earlier about people's need for community, people's need to actually be present to one another. Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. And that's that's the thing too. I mean, our politics is so perverse right now. What should be so healing for America to see this beautiful family, to, you know, to see this woman who has been able to operate with traditional values and yet have this this career that makes her qualified for the Supreme Court. Um, I think it's I think it's important too because people talk about, you know, scripts for life and, and young people and what you know what what kind of path they're gonna take. Having an appreciation for the reality. People get creative, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's fine, you know? Because we you know, there's a, I think there's this caricature and they're trying to caricature her with this stupid handmaid's tale thing anyway. But I think there's this caricature that conservative Catholic Catholics want women to be barefoot and pregnant still, and, you know, but he, here you have somebody who has seven children and, and yet is, is a nominee for the Supreme Court. And I think that's an appreciation for, and I think, again, healing. I think this can be healing. How many women feel so guilty, you know, of, should I be, should I be, should, you know, mm-hmm. and so many you young women to and, and be creative, you know, and so many young women that are torn, they think they need to choose between family and profession right. what a wonderful example that you can have both right you know right. you exactly. you make you connected some dots in your piece you said you wrote real religious freedom is not mere freedom of worship it's the freedom to live faith out in the world to be an integrated whole and i think that's what we see in amy coney barrett is an integrated whole person who's able to hold all these things in her character and live them out fully yeah and, and we have we had such beautiful moments remember when when one of the senators asked her about george floyd and she talked about crying with her daughter you know a real human being even mm-hmm. she made on the second day she she made some comment to one of the senators about how she needed a glass of wine at the end of the first day you know <laughs> the first day of grilling you know um and um that went on for so long and even even the republican senator from louisiana was kind of a jerk to her <laughs> she mm-hmm. was just so lovely <laughs> throughout it this is really something to celebrate and it's um it's obviously hard in our hyper uh, political times i actually for a long time during this year didn't watch uh cable news so one night i think about a month ago i uh, decided i was going to watch the the three networks and sort of go back and forth and oh my goodness my blood pressure <laughs> yeah right <laughs> And, and it's exactly what you were saying, Gracie, before. There's a completely different reality on Fox News than there is on MSNBC. Mm-hmm. And I used to watch, or, or CNN for that matter, I had no appreciation for how how um, Chris Cuomo was. <laughs> and as a New Yorker, I'm no fan, a fan of his family. But it's just, just like people in the media letting themselves get sucked into this rage you know of people's miseries and yeah and you know and amy coney barrett in her in her hearings she presents that that grace that doesn't allow itself to fall into a rage i mean how many people could stand that barrage and not bark at least once she's been amazing that way i think grace is exactly the word you know one of the cases that um that she may be called upon to decide quickly rather quickly if she is confirmed is a case that you've been working hard on for a long time, which is the faith-based adoption agency case out of Philadelphia. What uh, This is a pretty interesting um, intersection, right? Uh, this case and a woman um, like Amy Coney Barrett might be deciding it, who has adopted children and in, and in an interracial family. There's something 
that seems providential about it all that we'd be frankly talking talking about adoption because of her her biography but also people on the left saying crazy things about Mm -hmm. her adoption and so you know to me very hurtful things i have because i have an interracially adopted child and to see myself caricatured like that as as a racist basically <laughs> from when people who adopt i have i've met a lot of people who've adopted i've been in the adoption community for a long time people who adopt are colorblind i have to say uh, they are colorblind this is such an important issue because it's like this hidden pain that people have to bear people who are who who open their hearts and their homes are then accused of being racist or even something even more sinister I, although i don't know if you get more sinister than racism but um, well, selfish you know, s- selfish well, and, and suggesting that they kidnapped you know or oh yeah some, stealing know, basically oh, stealing stop, children right. from the appropriate people people out of a desire to uh, please oneself that right. like you steal a right. car <laughs> yeah it's it, but but this is this is real i i you know she talks about it publicly there's this, this hasidic woman i know who she and her husband have two adopted children it's interracial malka. it's malka you've met malka mm-hmm. malka gordon and she she and her husband were made to feel terrible for stealing them from their heritage i just there are these two little children two little babies who and the agency called about the second child like knowing that they would be open and that they already had one one black child and so these are children who don't have time to spare you know um these are the critical days as as you can Mm -hmm. you can talk about better than i can as a doctor so how dare you and it is my hope that amy barrett having to suffer some of this so publicly will be uh, an opportunity for people to become more aware of this and to become more aware of why ca- that this case has to happen is insane. Review it's review the evil. case for us, Catherine, so, since, since so, we might not be up all on it. So in Philadelphia, the city, at the same time that they announced that they had a crisis in foster care and needed more families to step up to the plate because of the opioid crisis. At the same time, they decided to sever their contract with Catholic Social Services, which had a long track record of success Mm -hmm. and and, uh, secular independent ratings and all the rest. So all of a sudden, we stop. And so there are there are families, homes that are ready for children and there are children who need to be in homes. But they've now all been cut off, all of these these uh, people who work with Catholic social uh, social services because of the bigotry of the city government. And the most outrageous aspect of this case is there was no gay couple that complained. There was no gay couple who showed up at Catholic Social Services and, you know, didn't get a placement. This was total ideology. The city thinks that we're unfit if we believe what we believe about marriage to be to be a foster or adoptive family. And that is where we are in America. That's what all that may the dogma live loudly within me mm-hmm. stuff is about, as as listeners probably know, Diane Feinstein in the pr- previous co- confirmation hearing for for the court, uh, Amy Barrett's on now. Uh, 
Diane Feinstein basically said that that your your traditional Catholic views are make you unfit for office, and that is where we are in America today. And That's when we when seeing. we talk about this divide between the two sides of America, it's very real because on the other side, they say that any kind of if, if you're not able to to hold equally in your mind marriage, traditional classic natural marriage, right. which is a man and a woman, uh, with other kinds of sexual relationships, then you are by by definition, a bigot, and you shouldn't have the right to have, you know, to run foster care right. agencies, but also not to run parochial schools even and uh, and educate children. I've seen very, very ugly attacks on the left, and I'm, I'm very sad about it. And and I do hope that Amy Coney Barrett can bring her, her beautiful gracefulness to this case, which should be heard soon, and also to Is these it, other it's issues. It's going to be heard the morning after the election. Wow. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know how many people are going to be paying attention to it, sadly. Um, the morning after the election, it's our friends at the Beckett Fund are, are responsible for, for that. Uh, Amazing. For Amazing um, timing. I hope that uh, I hope that a lot of people will be paying attention because this is a, a bedrock issue. It, it really is so important. And I, I hope that it can serve to 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 make people more aware of the need in the United States um, for for children who don't have permanent families and so desperately need them. One of the talk about sad, it was just piercing realities about our foster care crisis these days is these kids who age out of foster care and who will purposely get themselves arrested so they'll have somewhere to sleep and eat and shower oh that's I mean, hideous that happens in the united states you know as christians we have to do something about that and that doesn't mean everybody adopts because not everyone's called to do it but to rally around the people who are adopting mm-hmm. and, I mean, and facilitate it and facilitate it and, exactly. and make it uh, you know the whole community support the people who can help, do it help with date nights and bring over food and there are lots of ways that a Catholic parish, and this is this is something that I find that evangelicals do a lot better than Catholics at yes, this point. Yes, they do. Because evangelicals don't have the whole institution we have. So it's like your church, and you look around and find the needs and know mm-hmm. the people. And yeah, you don't expect someone at the Archdiocese to have a whole office devoted to this problem. <laughs> exactly. The Catholics need to do a better job of being a parish community, finding out what the needs are, looking around, asking questions, and then, yeah, rallying around the foster and adoptive parents in in a particular way. Obviously, there are other needs in the community, but if every, there's some organization, now I forget the name, but the point of it is if every, if every church in America decided to make this a cause, we wouldn't have any children in foster care. And when you think about that, you have to start asking some questions, you know, what more can we be doing? Well, that's a great, those are great words to end on, Catherine. We're all out of time and thank you oh, so, so much. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time with us and and please to all our listeners, go to nationalreview.com and, and read her great recent piece and all her other amazing work. Oh, I always look forward to talking to you. So thank you, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and says, our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. 
This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. He'll speak to us about something that has great relevance to us as we observe some of the questions being posed to Amy Coney Barrett during her confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court. Jesus' words have very much great relevance for us as we prepare for the elections in just over two weeks. They concern how we as disciples of Jesus order our whole lives as citizens, not only of our country, but of the heavenly Jerusalem. In the gospel, two groups that were arch enemies conspired to try to trap Jesus. Both the Herodians and the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus out of the way because both felt threatened. They decided to ask him a question about which they themselves were constantly in disagreement, whether it was lawful to pay taxes to or support in any way the Roman Empire. The Herodians were lax as syncophants, and regardless of how they felt personally about a foreign power's ruling over them, decided that if you couldn't beat the Romans, you should join them. They cooperated with the Romans in almost everything, including taxes. The Pharisees, like most Jews, deeply resented being dominated by a foreign power, and found utterly repulsive the thought of giving a tribute to a foreign ruler who fancied himself a god. Both groups thought that their long-standing disagreement was a perfect catch-22, by which to nail the carpenter from Nazareth. So they approached Jesus and manifested their mendacity and hypocrisy by a barrage of empty flattery. Teacher, they said, we know you're a truthful man. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Show deference to no one and don't play favorites. Then came the question, is it lawful? to pay the census tax to Caesar or not. It was the perfect query, they thought, because no matter how Jesus answered, they had him. If he failed to respond, he'd lose the authority with the crowds by tucking one of the most relevant political questions of the day. He said yes, he'd risk losing the affection of the masses, who hated the Romans, hated the emperor, and particularly hated being forced to give him any recognition at all. If he said no, then they could turn him over to Pontius Pilate for inciting lawlessness. But Jesus wouldn't be trapped, and he showed yet here again how he always brings good out of evil. In answer to their hypocrisy, Jesus pointed the path to true human integrity. In response to their deceitfulness, he gave us a truth to live by, one that's just as pertinent today as it ever was. After he asked to see a coin used for the tax, they brought him one, showing that all of them used the money when it served their purposes. And Jesus queried, Whose image is this and whose inscription? When they responded Caesar's, he gave them and us the principle that extends far beyond the days of Rome. Then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Most of Jesus' original listeners thought that you couldn't serve two leaders, God and Caesar. Either you gave to God, they thought, or you gave to Caesar. Jesus said it was not necessarily either war, but could be and should be both and. We have responsibilities in the social order, what we might call the horizontal plane, and we also have responsibilities toward God, the vertical plane. The two should go together. One of our responsibilities toward God is to love our neighbor. One of the greatest services we render our neighbor is the service of the truth that flows from faith in God. This Sunday, we won't go to church to entrap Jesus in his speech, but to learn from him the truth that will set us free. And we'll ask him the same question about the allegiance we owe to the social order, to our country, to our society, to our cities, to our communities. And Jesus will turn to us and ask us something. We won't request to see a dollar bill, but we'll rather say, look in the mirror. Whose image do you see? Jesus will want us to recognize that we are made in the image and likeness of God. And then he'll say, Then give to God the things that are God. All that we are, all that we have, all our time, talents, money, resources, health, comes from God. They're part of our being in his image. We're called by him in justice and wisdom and love to give back to God the things that are his. What ought to happen when conflicts arise between the two orders of responsibility Jesus describes, to God and to the social order? 
The concern of the scribes and Pharisees hasn't disappeared. The best principle, I think, comes from the example of the last words of St. Thomas More. When King Henry VIII, whom Thomas had served faithfully as chancellor, had required all British subjects to swear an oath saying Henry, and not Jesus Christ or Jesus' vicar on earth the Pope, was the supreme head of the church in England, and another basically swearing under God that Henry's marriage to Catherine of Aragon was null, his supposed marriage to Anne Boleyn was valid, and that his rightful heir would be his and Anne's offspring. Thomas More refused. Almost all of the Christians in England took the oaths. Almost every bishop in England, other than St. John Fisher, capitulated. Thomas resigned the chancellorship. His family was reduced to poverty. Those who were trying to kiss up to the king sought ways to harm him. Eventually, the king's loyalists trumped up charges against Thomas to get him thrown into the infamous prison of the Tower of London. They harassed, molested, and starved Thomas almost to submission, but he never relented. Finally, they framed him and got him sentenced to death. As he stood on the platform where he would be beheaded, he was asked whether he had any last words. His valedictory right before his decapitation was, I have always been the king's good servant, but God's first. These words, each of us is called to make our own. All of us are called to be good servants of our nation, of our communities, of our city, but God's good servants first and above all. Should there be a conflict between what we owe to God and what our civil leaders claim we owe to them, God must win. And the greatest service we can give to society and our rulers is to serve God faithfully, because by this we bring to them the truth, which is the only foundation on which society can be firmly grounded. This service, this duty, is becoming more urgent, because the supposed conflicts between what we owe to God and what others claim we owe to them and society are growing through various woke attacks on the Christian faith, mainly because we Christians won't go along with the spirit of the age, whether that means killing the, our unborn children or redefining marriage or giving in to a caustic culture that denigrates others, refuses to accord them dignity or embrace them as we would embrace Christ. We Christians are called to be salt, light, and leaven for a society lifting it up. And this requires courage, sometimes even martyrdom. In 1953, when the communist regime in Poland ordered the implementation of a law by which it, not the Catholic Church, would appoint and remove pastors, vicars, and bishops, Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski of Warsaw, the primate of Poland, drew the line saying, We teach that it's proper to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But when Caesar himself sits on the altar, we respond curtly, He may not. What will we do when our politicians try to sit on the altar? What will we do when the universities or Hollywood or the mobs do? Will we stand up or go with the tide? Will we vote according to our faith or according to other criteria? Will we actually be salt, light, and leaven, teaching others to render to, thing, to God the things that are God's? Or will our salt lose its savor and our light be kept under a bushel basket? This weekend, God will ask us to look in the mirror and see in whose image we're made. Then he will call us to act in accordance with that dig dignity. St. Thomas More, St. John Fisher, the North American martyr, whom the church celebrates on Monday, and all the American saints are praying that God will give us the help and audacity he knows we need always to render to him the things that are his, so that we may be able to say at every moment of our life and at the hour of our death that we have always been good citizens of our great land who have sought to make it better. For there have always been God's good servants 
first. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 